Well, good Sunday morning to you all as you join us in this way online. We are glad that you're able to join with us and be able to continue in our series on Matthew. My name is Paul Graham. For those of you who have not joined us before or don't know me, I'm lead pastor here at Lakeside Church. And um, we are continuing in our series on Matthew. And if you remember way back, Last year now, in fact, uh, in the end of 2019, when we began Matthew, uh, I talked about the structure of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is divided up um, roughly into five discourses or five teachings where the action of Jesus' life and ministry pauses and we get a chunk of teaching. And then Matthew returns to narrative that sort of moves the plot along. Jesus literally moves uh, through Galilee and through Israel. Um, and then it pauses again for another section of teaching. And so chapter 17 of Matthew completes a section of narrative with Jesus going up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter, James, and John witness that and then they come down off of the mountain and then they return to the region of Capernaum where Jesus heals a boy and they pay up their temple taxes and we talked about that last week. Chapter 18 begins the fourth discourse of Matthew or the fourth time where the narrative pauses and we get a section of teaching and lessons from Jesus. And in this discourse, Jesus is teaching generally about the relationships the disciples are to have amongst themselves, how the church is meant to behave, how Christians are meant to, to treat one another. And he's been teaching about that all through his discourses, um, but he just reemphasizes a few things here again uh, as he's preparing to leave and getting his church that he's just declared uh, ready for his departure. And so he talks about don't try to make yourselves great over others. Don't be a stumbling block causing others to sin. Don't offend those who may seem younger or weaker in the faith. If someone does offend you, then forgive them. Be faithful in marriage, etc. These are the sorts of lessons that we get in the fourth discourse. And Jesus is certainly not naive. He knows that his disciples and that Christians will offend one another. We will hurt, we will harm, we will despise, we will abuse, we will mistreat one another eventually. And so in this fourth discourse, in the middle of this teaching here, he bakes in some instructions and an illustration about how forgiveness is meant to work amongst Christians, how forgiveness operates in the church. And that's what we're looking at today. The thing is about sin is that we're always dealing with two aspects of it. The sin we commit, which requires repentance on our part, turning away from and putting behind us so that we can press in closer to God. And then there's sin that is committed against us, which requires forgiveness and putting behind us and then pressing in closer to God. Sin always requires that we put it behind us and that we turn and that we press in closer to God. But depending on whether we're the sinner or whether we're the sinned against requires repentance as sinners and forgiveness as those who are offended. And so what do we do about the sin that harms us? What do we do when we harm others? And if you just take your Bible, you can turn down the corner of the page at the beginning of chapter 18. 
You're allowed to do that because chapter 18 of Matthew is your go-to chapter for forgiveness in the church for the rest of your life. And even as you get your Bibles and you turn to Matthew 18 and you turn down the corner, you might even get a pen and be prepared to underline some things and write some notes in the margin, which is also permitted in your Bible. Only write notes in your own Bible. It's kind of tacky to write notes in the margins of other people's Bibles, even though we're very tempted to underline certain phrases and write notes for them that we wish they would notice. Yeah, don't do that. Just mark your own Bibles. But there's two parts to the teaching. First, Jesus is outlining a process of addressing forgiveness or dealing with an offense in the church. And then he gives a parable or a story that makes the personal and the spiritual realities of forgiveness more tangible and relatable. And I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on the process because there's lots of lessons that Jesus is teaching us even in the process of forgiveness and reconciliation in the church. I might get to the parable. If I don't get to the parable, that will be your homework and your life group homework. You're definitely going to unpack the parable in your life groups. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18. Uh, verses 15 to 17 uh, to begin with. And let me just pray before we look into God's word. Father God, we thank you that you give us this instruction. We thank you for this amazing time that we've spent in the Gospel of Matthew with a few breaks here and there. But just this consistent teaching directly from the word, from the mouth of Jesus and his instruction to us as his disciples. I just pray this topic of forgiveness is so critical to all of us. And I pray that we will take it to heart and that it will transform our understanding and our knowledge of how forgiveness works in the Christian life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Again, Jesus is been talking about offense. We, we talked about actually the not giving, we're free to not give offense last week. Uh, he talks about uh, people trying to put themselves disciples earlier in the chapter over other disciples. He talks about not offending or causing uh, young children in the faith to stumble or sin. And now he gets to this teaching on, which is basically, you will offend somebody and you will be offended. So what do you do about that in the church? Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." So there we have a summary of the ideal situation in the case of an offense in verse 15. Jesus is outlining a process here very clearly, a three-step process of how we deal with a situation where somebody sins against us. And verse 15, the first verse, summarizes the ideal outcome. It says, if your brother sins against you. So someone sins against you, they cause you harm, they miss the mark with their words or their actions, they are at fault. And the assumption here in the text, obviously, is that this is a real offense. It's not an offense that you imagine or one, an offense that you have exaggerated or an offense that you have manufactured in order to gain relationship leverage for your own purposes. And that's a whole other counseling session as far as how Christians misuse sensitivity and misuse offense for relationship power. 
But in this situation, Jesus is talking about a brother or a sister who has literally offended you. They've caused you real harm, and they've acted thoughtlessly, carelessly, maybe even maliciously, and they've wounded you. Specifically, they've acted in such a way that it's not simply resolved by grace. We get offended lots of times by people. People, you know, hurt our feelings, or they unintentionally do something, or we're able to forgive them by grace. We don't have to go into this big process every single time. In fact, ideally, just through mercy and grace, we don't need to. But the situation here is somebody is deeply offended, and simple grace is not going to cover it. There needs to be a conversation. And this is not theoretical. I've had it happen to me many times. You've had it happen to you. You may be sitting here listening to this right now, and be thinking about a name of somebody who has offended you in such a way that you found it very difficult to forgive, that grace is not able to simply put it behind you, and that you can then lean in closer to God and put this behind you. There needs to be words exchanged. There needs to be some sort of reconciliation, and that's good. It is perfectly correct of you right now during this message to be thinking of a specific personal case, because Jesus is not talking in theory here. He is talking about his disciples and how they are to live together. So what do you do about it as a Jesus follower living in community with this person who has offended you? Well, before we even go to what we should do about it, let's look quickly at what the result is that we are aiming for, because that is an important thing to understand in this forgiveness process. Really, what is the process trying to accomplish? And the end of the verse delivers the successful, happy, joyful, God-honoring result in a very simple phrase. If the process works, Jesus says at the end of verse 15, you have gained a brother or a sister. So let's be crystal clear about what our motive is meant to be in this process of forgiveness. Jesus implies it very clearly. Our motive in the process of seeking reconciliation and forgiveness is that we have our heart set on right from the start that the reason I'm going to a person in order to deal with an offense is because I want to regain them as a brother or sister. I want my relationship with them restored. And don't take that end result or don't take that motive for granted. If we rush into confrontation for the purpose of forgiveness in our minds, we may have all sorts of complicated motives hidden in our hearts. We may go into a confrontation with somebody over an offense thinking that I want them to pay for what they did. I want her to acknowledge I was right. I want the power of having the moral high ground in this relationship. Oh man, that's a big one. I mean, isn't it? The the desire that we have to get the moral high ground over those who have offended us. And there are all other kinds of terrible motives that we can go into a supposed forgiveness conversation about, and those motives will sabotage it. But Jesus says, this is not really a resolution process. We're not simply resolving what happened. It is a restoration process. The aim of a forgiveness process is the restoration and redemption of a broken relationship. That's our motive. That's our goal. That's why we engage in forgiveness as Christians. And if you have some other motives hidden in your heart that have to do with power or revenge or self-gratification or whatever else, Jesus does not give those as motives here. The motive of a successful process is the restoration, regaining a brother, regaining a sister. 
So let's keep that firmly in mind right away. The goal is regaining a brother. If that isn't your goal, then you're not ready yet for a forgiveness process. And it's unfair to the one who offended you to enter into a process and a conversation with you if your motive isn't really restoration of the relationship. If you're going to somebody for apparently forgiveness reasons, apparently for reconciliation reasons, but your motives are not really set on regaining them as a brother or a sister in Christ and restoring that relationship to what it was, that's not fair to that person because you're going into that conversation with other motives. So now, let's get our motives right. Let's say we have our motives right. We want to restore the relationship. That's what our heart is set on. Now, what do we do if someone's wounded us? Jesus says, this is the process. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So step one, Jesus says, if it works, solve the problem right away. Go and talk to that person alone. Tell them the way in which they hurt you, how the harm was caused. And notice, just from that, first of all, it does not say, go and tell your friends. It does not say, first step, go and get advice and ask for prayer from 12 other people in the church. And I won't belabor that point because I think we all understand how harmful that kind of activity is. So I, I won't belabor it because I think we understand it. However, I will belabor that point because a lot of us are still doing it. We know it's harmful, but we're not strong enough to face the problem head on. And so we, a lot of us, are taking the easy route, the weak route of convincing other people how terrible the person that offended us is and what they did was. And of course, that's an easy win, right? That's always the easy route. That's like playing chess against yourself. How can you lose when you're presenting both sides of the case? Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first person to speak always seems right until someone comes and asks the right questions or until they are cross-examined. And that's the way it is when someone offends us, right? We go around and we say, let me tell you what this person did to me. In fact, not only let me tell you what they did, but let me tell you why they did it and the motives of their heart and what a terrible person that they are. As if we're Jesus and we can see these things. And then I'll tell you how I acted and how I felt, selectively of course, based on my unbiased memory. And you be the judge after I tell you the story, whether I was totally in the right and they were terrible and in the wrong. I mean, you're gonna win that round every time. And so you repeat it with one friend, and then you repeat it with three friends and six friends. And amazingly, every time you repeat the story, you come out looking great. But you never face the person who actually caused you harm. You never face the brother or sister who sinned against you. And so the real wound is never treated. And one sin leads to a dozen more sins. Your sins as you gossip and as you sabotage the reputation of another. As you miss the mark of not wanting a restored relationship but simply wanting the sympathy of others and perhaps relationship leverage. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. Jesus says, go and talk directly alone with the person who harmed you. And all sorts of clarifying details might come out of that conversation. When you do that, you provide for the person who offended you a beautiful opportunity to repent, a beautiful opportunity to reconcile and restore the situation before it spreads any further and any further damage is done. And you regain a lost relationship instead of driving a wedge deeper. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 say, Work at living in peace with everyone. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. 
It's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Jesus says, go to that person alone. Go to them first. Don't go to others. Go talk to them. Give them the opportunity to hear what's on your heart, an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to restore the relationship so that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble the church and corrupt many. That's the first thing we notice. Secondly, notice that Jesus says, you need to tell them the fault. Now, when we hear that normally in our flesh, we think, this is the good part. This is where I get to unload on them just how I feel about how wrong they were. But as we think about this a little deeper, what it really demands of us is humility. And this is, again, where we avoid the hard path and take the easy route. We avoid the hard route of forgiveness, and we don't talk to somebody face to face. Jesus says that this, just, just hear it this way. Jesus says, go and admit that you are wounded by their actions. Go and be vulnerable. Go and tell them how it affected you, how you were harmed by it, the damage that it caused to you. And that's tough. Because we would rather say, you acted terrible and you did a terrible thing, but it didn't hurt me. I'm tough. I could, you know, I could, I could slough it off. You know, it rolled off of me because I'm better than you or something like that. But if it, if it didn't hurt us, then why are we talking about it? Why, why is it bothering us? No, the truth is when we're sinned against, we are hurt. And Jesus says that we need to go to the person that hurt us. And this is so, so tough. Go to the person that hurt us and tell them vulnerably and humbly that we're wounded, that, that they actually did have the power to hurt us. And that's transparency and honesty and vulnerability that's very, very difficult. And, and Jesus says that we need to express it honestly and fully. We need to say it. Don't assume the person knows they hurt you, or certainly don't assume they know how they hurt you, or how much they hurt you, or how deeply painful it was. You have to tell them, Jesus says, because it's also not fair to the person who offended you to enter into a forgiveness process unwilling to be vulnerable yourself. The process is going to be frustrated and unsatisfactory if neither side are committed to honesty, and that includes the person who was offended as well as the offender. And notice that Jesus so far is putting the onus of action on the person who was sinned against, not on the person who sinned. Now, in Mark chapter 5, we know that if we are the offender, we are to go and make it right. There are times when we know we offended somebody. And Mark chapter 5 says, if you know that you've offended somebody, before you come to worship, before you put your sacrifice on the altar, go to the person that you've offended and make it right if you know you've done that. But what Jesus is talking about here is the person who was sinned against, the person who was offended. And they are the ones who have the onus of action to go to the person who offended them and to be vulnerable and transparent and enter into this reconciliation. We often think that the victim is free from all responsibility, but Jesus would not agree with that assessment. Even if you are the victim of hurt, even if you are the victim of being sinned against, Jesus says, no, as a Christian, you still have an obligation to take action. You still have an obligation to humility and vulnerability in this process. So just in this little sample of the best case scenario, we have some hard lessons on forgiveness already. 
We learn that we need to go directly to the one who has offended and not to our 12 friends. And we need to talk to them about the hurt that we feel and we need to be vulnerable in how their actions caused us pain. And we need to guard our hearts and our motives to be 100% focused on the restoration of the relationship and not for any other selfish reasons. But if we, as the sinned against, do those three things, the best case scenario we get at the end of the verse Jesus says, he listens to you. Now, Jesus doesn't just mean that they hear your words audibly through their ear canals, obviously. Jesus means that they hear what you have to say, they agree with you, and they reconcile with you. And we know that's what Jesus means because he says at the end, you gain a brother. You get the best outcome. The relationship is restored. So if we do these three hard things, the best possible outcome right off the bat before it gets any farther between the two of you, is that, the, that they listen and that the relationship is restored. But it doesn't always go that well. Verse 15 is best case scenario, but it doesn't always go like that. So Jesus adds two more steps now that simply reinforce the possibility of the same good outcome. Motives and vulnerability and communication and all of that stays the same in the next two steps, but these next two steps add strength and accountability to the potential of a good outcome. Verse 16 is the second step. Jesus, being wise, knows that the first step isn't always going to work with a sinful generation such as ours. So he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus says, if meeting face-to-face alone didn't work, he says, okay, something must have happened here where the two people can't agree on what really happened. Or maybe they can't agree on the motives of it. Or if it really was a sin and an offense. Or maybe you're just taking offense where no offense was present. Jesus says, between the two of you, you can't resolve it. Okay, the next step is to meet together with two or three other people. Bring two or three others to your next meeting and talk through it again. And let the other two or three listen to both of you. Notice again that he doesn't say, Go and talk to two or three other people. He says, bring two or three other people to the meeting with that person with you. Neither side gets to spin the facts to their advantage on behalf of the other. And it's more than a little implied here that these friends that you bring are neutral friends. These are not people who you have already heard your side of the story and they agree to you. They are not people you have already recruited to your team. Because, of course, as per step one, you haven't talked to them about this yet, right? And Jesus refers here to the legal practice of establishing evidence in a legal sense, which would be impartial witnesses. So this is step two. If you can't resolve it face-to-face with that person, if there's disagreement, if there's misunderstanding, go get a couple of friends who are Christians, impartial friends. Bring them to your next meeting. Let them hear. Let them give their side of what they hear and give their wisdom to it. Now go through the same process. Be vulnerable, be humble, have your heart still set on restoration of the relationship. Don't have your heart set on payback or power or proving yourself. And if this meeting goes as planned, then you have gained a brother. The relationship is restored. But Jesus knows that that still might not even work. Sometimes the person still refuses to listen, even to two or three other mutual friends, and they don't agree, and they dig in, and they refuse to acknowledge that they have sinned, or they simply will not repent of the sin or do anything about it. So if that meeting still doesn't work, Jesus says there's a third step. You take it to the whole church. It says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the, again, the clear indication of this process is that this person really has sinned against you, and they really do need to repent and reconcile of whatever offense they have caused and whatever harm they have done. But the situation here also that Jesus says it may end up, and be prepared for this, that they simply will not repent. They won't listen, they won't repent, they won't reconcile, they will dig in with a hard heart. And if it's a serious enough thing, then the whole church, or let's say the whole local community of believers, needs to know what is going on. This doesn't mean we put it on the internet so that churches in Russia and Argentina know what's going on. Jesus is not talking about the global universal church, right? He's talking about the band of believers who interact on a regular basis with this person and the elders who have oversight with them. They need to know what is going on because if a relationship between two Christians in a church community is utterly broken and there's no repentance and reconciliation made possible, then people need to know, not in order to gossip or judge, but people need to know in order to act accordingly towards that person. Now, how do we act? There's a lot of misunderstanding about this. The result of them not listening to the whole community is that basically it puts a question mark over their heads with respect to their fully belonging to that community. Jesus says at the end, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if you get this person who just absolutely refuses to repent, absolutely refuses to acknowledge wrongdoing, absolutely digs in their heels against you, friends, the elders, the whole church, Jesus says, are they really part of the church? Do they actually belong in the community of faith? He says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now let's be clear about that. That does not get translated as, so therefore treat them badly. Gentiles and tax collectors is a phrase in the first century in the scripture. It's a phrase that basically meant outsiders and traitors or unholy enemies. But do the gospels in anything that we've read in Matthew so far, does anything that Jesus say and teach us tell us that we are to mistreat Gentiles or mistreat outsiders or mistreat tax collectors or mistreat enemies? No. The gospel is for all people, and Jesus came especially for sinners and tax collectors. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us in Matthew 5.43. And so when Jesus says here, treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors, we do not interpret that as, therefore, mistreat them. However, Gentiles and tax collectors obviously fall into the category of not Jesus' followers. And this is about the question mark of their status in the church among God's people. We treat them with the same kindness and love and sincerity and hopefulness that we would treat anyone that we meet outside of the church. We treat this unrepentant person who offended us as someone who needs to hear the gospel and receive it. As someone who needs to experience the love of Christ in order to be won back into the embrace of the church. We don't treat them as someone who has the Holy Spirit and is operating in the knowledge of their salvation. Because they wouldn't be unrepentant and resistant if they were. So Jesus says, if someone goes through this whole process and they're still dug in, we really don't know that they belong. That doesn't mean we mistreat them. It doesn't mean we harm them back or treat them badly. It just means we treat them as someone who needs the gospel. We treat them as someone who needs to experience the love of Christ. 
So when they act hurtfully or stubbornly or belligerently in the future, or they act with hostility towards others or reject the ways of Christ, then we're not surprised by that, are we? I mean, we would be surprised if a Christian acted that way, but not a non-Christian. Jesus says we, we no longer hold them to the same standard as we would a believer in the church. Now, later on, again, in the church, functioning church, in the decades that followed Jesus, the Apostle Paul takes the teaching of Jesus here and he interprets it this way in 1 Corinthians 5.12, a real situation of sin taking place in the church. And as this sin has caused damage to families and relationships in the church, God says, you need to take this person who's clearly unrepentant and put them out of the church. But he says, don't judge them as if they're a Christian. They're not behaving like a Christian. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders, Gentiles and tax collectors? I, I don't have anything to do with judging them. It is not those, is it not those inside the church who we are to judge? God judges those outside. And so purge the evil person from among you or remove this person, remove this offender from among you. So Paul picks up on this teaching of Jesus here and he says, work out your offenses inside the church. But if you're dealing with people who are clearly by their actions, putting themselves outside the church, leave that to God. It's not your job to judge Gentiles and tax collectors. It's not your job to judge non-Christians. If they don't repent, then remove their status in your mind or even officially as part of the church family. Count them as an outsider. But Paul's motives are the same as Jesus's. He states his motives right at the beginning of this. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. In other words, so that in the end, we gain a brother. Jesus here in Matthew says, if they don't listen to you or your witnesses or even to the whole church, just assume they're not part of the church and treat them as such. That is with the hope that they will eventually really and truly respond to the gospel and be welcomed in. Now, Jesus then, at the end of this, goes into a parable. And I'm going to leave that parable, I think, for your life groups and for you to do some homework with. And I'll post the notes so that you can do the homework on the parable. But I think we've got enough to digest here just on this idea of the process of forgiveness and what it demands on us. As you've been listening, you, you hopefully had someone in mind in terms of your job as a Christian to go and approach them for the purpose of forgiveness. You have someone in mind who offended you, a situation where you feel like the relationship can't honestly be restored unless words are spoken to each other and forgiveness can take place. Well, that, what this means from our text here is that you need to prepare your heart for that kind of a meeting. You need to set your heart and your motives purely on the restoration of a brother or a sister. That's the goal, not payback or self-gratification or moral high ground. You need to set your heart on the motive of restoring that relationship and desiring that relationship restored. You need to start preparing your heart with God's help to honestly desire that beautiful restoration. You may have to stop talking about them and their offense with other people and get ready to face them face to face. That means you need to prepare yourself to be vulnerable, to do the hard work of being honest about how you were hurt and all the ways that their actions impacted your life and caused you distress. And you have to count the cost of what forgiving them will mean. Because forgiveness means that they don't pay the price for their actions, you do. And you'll unpack some of that in the parable. 
if you make them pay for what they did to you, then you haven't really forgiven them. You've made them pay what they owe. And so you need to tell them, this is how you hurt me. And this is what I'm going to forgive, the price I'm going to pay. And then you need to prepare yourself that they will not listen and that you might need to bring some friends to help them see. You may need to even bring it to the elders or to a wider part of the church community, but always with them present to see it resolved. And that doesn't usually happen. Most of the time, step one and two works. That's what Jesus encourages of his disciples. It would be amazing to see a whole church actually operating under these instructions from Jesus. I know that no church will do it perfectly. Jesus knew that no church would do it perfectly. That's why there was three steps to it. And the result of all three didn't work. But I wonder how often we really even try in this area. I think a church that was honestly characterized by this behavior of forgiveness taking place as it should in verse 15, of just one-on-one, -on -one, have a conversation, be vulnerable with a motive of restored relationship. Whether if a church operated like that on a regular basis, how diff different the typical church would look. Right now, quite often, our churches look barely different than the rest of the world in our interpersonal relationships. There are too many feuds, there is too much disdain, there are too many broken relationships that just never get mended and we're able to simply tolerate because it's easier and because the auditorium is big enough that we're able to sit on opposite sides. Or we can sit at home and just watch on the internet. But if we are each to individually and wholeheartedly embrace the teaching of Jesus in the care of our relationship through forgiveness, then the church could be something so much more and so much more transformative and a greater witness to the power of Jesus in forgiveness. So in this fourth discourse of Jesus, he drives into the heart of a really important matter. And I may have to come back and tackle that parable next week. I don't know. We'll let you do it in your life groups and we'll see where it goes. But this issue of forgiveness is so important. And so I beseech you, if you need help in understanding how Christian forgiveness works, if you need somebody to come alongside you and guide you through this, if you need an advocate to go with you to get forgiveness from somebody and to be able to forgive and to hear repentance, then certainly come to me, come to an elder, come to any of the staff members and say, I need an advocate, I need help in this regard. And we will make sure that it gets done. Father God, we just thank you that you have given us this teaching. We ask for, from your Holy Spirit, the courage and wisdom and humility and vulnerable, vulnerability to be able to forgive as Jesus did, to forgive these offenses against us and to reconcile relationships with our brothers and sisters. We pray this in Christ's name.